0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm
0: Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry.
1: Today's podcast was originally supposed to be about Afro-Ben. And don't worry if you are one of the many, many people who asked for that one and are disappointed by the words supposed to be. Uh, that episode is still in the works. But very early on in researching it, a book that I was reading was sort of setting the stage with a description of life during the Restoration. That was the return of the British monarchy in 1660 and the years that followed it. And one bit of this description was that when he was restored to the throne... Charles II brought back a customary treatment for, quote, the king's evil, also known as scrofula, and that treatment was for the king to touch people.
0: <laughs> I, I love it. Uh, you know, medicine.
1: Yeah, yeah, I knew, I knew that the practice of the monarch laying on hands to cure sick people had been around during the medieval period, but, uh, I did not know it had gone all the way into the restoration, and I definitely did not know that a particular illness was so connected to it that people literally called it the King's Evil. So that was compelling enough to put off Afroben until a little later, which conveniently also gives me time to get through the immensely large book. <laughs> Holly saw that book last week while I was in Atlanta. It was quite big.
0: I did. Tracy was here visiting for work and she held up the book and said, how am I ever going to get through this in time? (laughs) (laughs) Because it is really a serious tome. It is. Uh, It is. So I'm glad that you'll have more time to work on that one. Me too. Because
1: I was having that moment where, like when you're in, in middle school and you put off your paper to the last minute Except I didn't put off the paper till the last minute. I just didn't realize until I got into it how colossal the research
0: was. I like how you think that's a middle school thing and not, say, a in-your-40s-working thing.
1: (laughs) It could be that,
0: too. It is for me sometimes. Not on purpose, but, you know, we do lots of stuff. So sometimes things fill in and I don't get as much time as I would like to write a thing. Um. But today, we know that scrofula is caused by the same bacteria as tuberculosis, and tuberculosis has been around for at least 9,000 years. It is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, infectious diseases still existing on Earth. And most people are probably familiar with tuberculosis in its pulmonary form, which has also been known as consumption or thysis.
1: The huge list of historical figures who were either known or believed to have had pulmonary tuberculosis is huge. It includes people like John Keats, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Emily Bronte, and many, many, many others. It's come up a lot in episodes of our show that Holly and I have worked on, including the history of the Grove Park Inn, Tarar, the New England Vampire Panic, Alan L. Hart and then of course, Selman Waxman, and the development of streptomycin, which was the first drug successfully used to cure it.
0: Scrofula, which comes from the Latin term for brood sow, is extrapulmonary tuberculosis, so it affects the body outside of the lungs. Specifically, it's an infection of the lymph nodes that's caused by tuberculosis. Although lymph nodes all over the body can be affected, In general, scrofula has been used to describe an infection in the neck. And when untreated, it causes swellings, sores, and sometimes abscesses, in particular around the lymph nodes at the top of the neck and under the jaw.
1: There's a little bit of debate about why a word for sow came to be used to describe scrofula. In some accounts, it's because pigs were prone to having tumors in their throats, in others, it's because scrofula makes your neck look thick and swollen like a pig's. Uh, Cassius Felix, who was writing in the year 447, said it looked, quote, just like the swollen neck of a sow. And some thought that it, maybe it was that the swellings and the sores brought on by scrofula looked like pigs themselves.
0: That one seems like the the most unlikely to me, but
1: it weirdly, I read a lot of old medical documents of people theorizing about why it was called that from, like, the 1700s.
0: You know, it's worth examination. Uh, but today we have diagnostic tests to confirm a tuberculosis infection, and thankfully we have the drugs to treat it. Especially in places with reliable access to modern medicine, It's really rare for scrofula to become a serious problem, with the exception of patients whose immune systems are compromised or occasionally uh, in a drug-resistant strain of the disease. And when treated quickly, the symptoms are usually limited to painless swelling in the lymph nodes. But
1: before the development of antibiotics, scrofula could become incredibly painful and disfiguring. It was also often mistaken for other conditions that also caused swelling or sores in the throat or neck, or those conditions were mistaken for scrofula. And these included mumps, glandular disorders, various skin conditions, and cancer.
0: Prior to the germ theory of disease, physicians had all kinds of other ideas about what caused scrofula. Under the ancient Greek idea of the body being regulated by four humors, scrofula was caused by an excess of phlegm. Charles II's royal surgeon wrote that scrofula came from the glands filling up with humor. Some
1: physicians in history believed it was inherited and not communicable. In 1813, William Turon described it as, quote, a genuine idiopathic hereditary disease. And in 1833, John Kent called it, quote, an hereditary
0: taint. Kent went on to say, quote, the other causes of this disease are bad and unwholesome diet, insufficient clothing, neglect of exercise and want of proper cleanliness. I may also observe that it frequently makes its first appearance after an attack of measles, smallpox, rheumatic fever, or other debilitating affections. And it is often excited into obvious existence by blows, sprains, bruises, or other accidents.
1: According to Thomas Fern, who wrote a treatise on scrofula in 1709, it was, quote, a preternatural malignant tumor or humor produced by a particular acidity of the serum of the blood, either in gland, muscle, or membrane, which it both coagulates and indurates, or in the marrow, which it always dissolves and also putrefies the bone. Hmm.
0: I hope nobody's eating breakfast while they listen to this.
1: There are several parts of this episode <laughs> where, if if this were an episode of Sawbones, it would be the part where where Justin is going, "Hmm, hmm, we can move on." Mm-hmm. Like you can tell, he just wants Sydney to stop saying the gross part.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't want to. It just occurs to me that if somebody is uh, a little bit delicate of tummy to these types of things, this may, maybe pause until you're done with your meal. Uh, But in Fern's treatise, children whose parents had scrofula, especially if their mother did while nursing, were more likely to develop it themselves. And, quote, here I cannot omit one observation by the by, that children also who are begotten at improper times of the moon have been often subject to be afflicted with this evil and to the last degree, too, of virulency. Let this be a warning to married people. (laughs) <laughs> the let this be a warning to married people <laughs> made me laugh, uh, a lot. It makes the first me laugh a lot. It. I just love the idea that depending on what time of the, the lunar cycle a baby is made might make it more, uh, you know, likely to contract this.
1: Yeah. Fern went on to list others who were more prone to scrofula, including people whose blood was naturally too acidic, children who had rickets, people who were generally weak, people whose bodies didn't have enough, quote, heat for good digestion, living in places with air that was too thin or too thick or was bad, uh, and also, quote, salt, sour, slimy meats or drinks. Not getting enough exercise, according to him, was yet another way you could develop scrofula.
0: Okay, putrefying bone is not a problem, but slimy meats is like, a, we're, we're creeping up to the edge of my, like, copability here. Um, some physicians did conclude that scrofula and tuberculosis were related, even if all their other ideas about it were completely off base. John Kent, for example, who had named its cause, quote, an hereditary taint, also wrote that consumption was, quote, neither more nor less than scrofula of the lungs in an 1833 edition of a text on scrofula and cancer. But it wasn't until 1882 that medical science pinpointed the bacterial cause of tuberculosis and confirmed that scrofula was caused by the same thing. Even then, there were naysayers who argued that scrofula was unrelated and not transmissible.
1: Over the centuries, a wide range of treatments were used to relieve scrofula, or try to, because uh, because the glands in question were usually in the neck. Surgeries could be particularly dangerous, although some doctors did attempt them. While still in the world of four-humor theory, treatments were often meant to balance the humors or drain excess through purgatives, diuretics, and bleeding. Compresses, poultices, and topical balms were applied to the swellings as well. And for those who thought that too much salt or too thin air or those sorts of things were the problems, uh, the treatment would include a change of diet or a change
0: of scenery. And we're going to talk about how scrofula came to be known as the king's evil that could be cured if the king touched it. Uh, but first, we're going to pause for a little sponsor break.
1: In medieval England, the name the king's evil eventually came to be directly connected to scrofula. But the basic idea goes back earlier than that and also connects to other diseases. In ancient Rome, the Latin Morbus Regius, or royal disease, was used to describe a number of different diseases, including jaundice and leprosy, which today is known as Hansen's disease.
0: It's not entirely clear where either of these associations came from. One is that royal was a reference to gold, so jaundice being called the royal disease is because the color of the patient's skin. Another theory is that particular royal or noble families were prone to certain diseases. Long after the time we're talking about today, and in other parts of the world, epilepsy and hemophilia have been described as royal diseases because of their connections to royal families.
1: There's some suggestion that people thought Hansen's disease could be cured through a royal touch, but there's very little evidence of a king actually trying that. Although, of course, there are biblical and other religious references that are not about a monarch.
0: There are a few very spotty references to monarchs in England and France, curing people through touch prior to the 10th and 11th centuries. The first was Clovis, king of the Franks, who reigned from 481 to 511, although the record on that one is very sparse. There are also reports of miraculous cures at the hands of Robert II of France, also known as Robert the Pious, or Robert the Pious, who was co-ruler of the Franks with his father from 987 to 996, and then he was the sole monarch until his death in 1031.
1: But the first widely chronicled event of the royal touch was under Edward the Confessor, who lived from... Uh, 1,003 to 1066, and he ruled England from 1042 until his death. He's called the Confessor because of his reputation for being a deeply pious man, and he's the only king of England ever to have been canonized.
0: Edward the Confessor reportedly cured a woman of scrofula. The woman had an infection under her jaw that was causing swelling, a bad smell, and multiple sores. She had a dream that if the king washed her with water, she would be cured. So she went to the court and asked to be given an audience.
1: This might sound odd to today's ears, but asking for an audience with the king for something like this at the time was definitely not unheard of. Edward the Confessor, along with other monarchs, distributed alms and offered comfort to the poor and the sick, particularly on religious holidays. And in this case, when the woman was brought before the king, he asked for a bowl of water.
0: There's some variation in exactly what happened next, as described in later accounts. But in general, it was more than just a laying on of hands or an anointing with water, combining the miraculous with the medical. Edward dipped his fingers in the water and touched the woman's abscesses, which opened up and drained, with some of the descriptions of what came out being far grosser than others. He kept dipping his fingers and washing and pressing until all of the putrescence was gone, and then he ordered the woman to be fed and cared for out of the royal purse until she recovered. I will repeat that if you go read up about
1: this on the internet, some of the descriptions are incredibly graphic. <laughs> I originally had more graphic stuff in here and then I was like, you know what? We're going to read this at 10 o'clock in the morning when we're both a little, you know, still getting used to the day. Maybe this is a little too intense.
0: I'm okay with the, the abscess draining. I'm still back on slimy meat and being like, <laughs> oh no. <laughs>
1: So there's some debate about whether uh, this woman's uh, symptoms were really scrofula or whether it was some other condition. But regardless, this one event solidified the connection between the king's evil and scrofula. And soon the royal ability to cure through touch was connected pretty much only to scrofula. Thomas Fern, whose treatise on scrofula we referenced in part one, wrote, quote, But I beg leave here to make one digression, by the way, about our English term for the struma or scrofula, as it is is now commonly called the king's evil in everybody's mouth, before I begin to define what I have hitherto only been describing by name. And some writers think that this name was given to any scrofulous or strumous disease long before Edward the Confessor's time. But, however, all agree, at least, that from his reign it was called nothing else
0: generally, and I may say vulgarly too, but the king's evil in England. Fern also wrote that the ability to heal it through touch was, quote, a particular gift to him at first and to no body before him as a singular reward of his holiness. And it was from there hereditary through the monarchy.
1: At least according to this guy. (laughs) This event also comes up in the work of Shakespeare in Act 4 of Macbeth, Macduff and Malcolm are standing outside Edward the Confessor's palace and a doctor comes through and mentions that there's a crowd of people inside seeking the king's touch. Malcolm then explains to Macduff what is going on. Quote, "'Tis called the evil, a most miraculous work in this good king, which often, since my here remain in England, I have seen him do. How he solicits heaven himself best known knows." But strangely visited people, all swollen and ulcerous, pitiful to the eye, the mere despair of surgery, he cures, hanging a golden stamp about their necks, put on with holy prayers, and, to spoken to the succeeding royalty, he leaves the healing benediction. With this strange virtue, he hath a heavenly gift of prophecy, and sundry blessings hang about his throne that speak him full of grace.
0: Although this scene takes place outside the palace of Edward the Confessor, his treatment of this woman for Scrofula seems to have been a one-time thing performed on one person, not a mass ceremony with a coin involved. However, it's a really good description of what this practice morphed into in later centuries as monarchs in England and France started touching large groups of subjects at special ceremonies and holidays.
1: Yeah, even though Shakespeare was writing about Edward the Confessor here, what he was describing was what was actually happening while he was living when people went to get cured of the king's evil. <laughs> Louis the Sixth of France, who ruled from 1108 to 1137, viewed this practice as, quote, customary, and he treated whole crowds with laying on of hands and the sign of the cross. Edward I of England, who ruled from 1272 to 1307, touched more than 500 of his subjects to cure them of scrofula in the course of a single month. By the end of his reign, he was touching more than a thousand people every year. People traveled great distances to the court of Philip IV of France, who ruled from 1285 to 1314. And the people who traveled the farthest to see him were also rewarded with large sums of alms. Henri IV of France, who ruled from 1589 to 1610, touched up to 1500 people in one single ceremony. I'm just gonna interject here, that seems like a bad public health move.
0: That's, I was thinking about like the germs, that how did all of these monarchs not constantly become ill themselves? It's a great question. Um, because they were magical, clearly. <laughs> Uh, it was Edward III of England who ruled from 1327 to 1377 who first started presenting those he touched with a coin, which was described in that passage that Tracy read from Macbeth. These coins became an ongoing practice known as angels or touch pieces and were sometimes strung through with a ribbon to be worn as a talisman. Edward III's father, Edward II, also started the practice of the monarch donating gold or silver on Good Friday, which would be made into cramp rings said to have healing powers. For the most part, the first few
1: generations of this royal touch were viewed as an outward expression of the monarch's personal sanctity. And if the monarch didn't have a lot of personal sanctity, uh, the gift would go away. For example... Philip I was king of the Franks from 1060 to 1108 and he reportedly did practice the royal touch at first until he became too sinful for it to work for him. He wound up having the nickname Philip the Amorous.
0: (laughs) But that connection to personal piety shifted a little bit after the Protestant Reformation. And we're going to talk about that after we pause one more time for a sponsor break.
1: (laughs) Over the years, some circular logic grew up around the king's evil and the royal touch. Scrofula was the king's evil because kings could cure it, and kings could could cure Scrofula because it was the king's evil. Following this same pattern, the monarch's practice of the royal touch started to be used as evidence of the monarch's legitimacy as the monarch. If the monarch did this thing, clearly they were legitimately the monarch. It sounds a lot like the Lord of the Rings legend from Gondor about the hands of the king or the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known.
0: (laughs) This shows up especially in the post-Reformation reign of Queen Elizabeth I, who was queen from 1558 until her death in 1603. Her first attempts at the king's touch seemed reluctant. However, after Pope Pius V excommunicated her and declared her a pretended queen and a heretic, she revived the practice, in part because her detractors claimed that God had taken the gift away from her for her heresy. And in one account, a Catholic woman came to her and begged to be cured. And when Elizabeth's touch was successful, The woman announced that the papal bull was clearly null because God was still working through the queen.
1: Today's episode of the podcast was inspired by this description of Charles II's revival of the practice during the Restoration. Under the reign of Charles II's father, Charles I, a form for healing at the hands of the king had become a part of the Book of Common Prayer, Charles I had also had touchpiece coins minted that were inscribed in Latin, translated to, quote, the love of the people is the king's protection. He got executed, so uh, apparently love was not enough protection for him.
0: Charles I was king until he was executed for high treason and the monarchy was abolished. Oliver Cromwell then became Lord Protector of England, Ireland, and Scotland. Cromwell was not a king and did not practice the royal touch, but Charles II, while in exile, continued the practice in part as evidence of his place on the throne. When the monarchy was restored, Charles II's touch pieces were inscribed with the Latin for glory to God alone. John Evelyn
1: wrote about Charles II's reinstatement of the practice of the royal touch after the restoration of the monarchy in his diary for July 6, 1660. Here's what it said. His majesty began first to touch for the evil, according to custom, thus... His majesty sitting under his state in the banqueting house, the surgeons cause the sick to be brought or led up to the throne where they kneeling. The king strokes their faces or cheeks with both his hands at once, at which instant a chaplain in his formalities says, quote, he has he put his hands upon them and he healed them. This is said to everyone in particular. When they have all been touched, they come up again in the same order, and the other chaplain kneeling and having an angel, gold-strung on white ribbon on his arm, delivers them one by one to his majesty, who puts them about the necks of the touched as they pass, while the first chaplain repeats, quote, This is the true light who came into the world. Then follows an epistle, at first a gospel with the li- with the liturgy, prayers for the sick, with some alteration, lastly the blessing. Then the Lord Chamberlain and the Comptroller of the household bring a basin, your towel for his majesty to wash.
0: Samuel Pepys wrote about it as well on April 13th of 1661, writing, quote, I went to the banquet house and there saw the King heel the first time that I ever saw him do it, which he did with great gravity. And it seemed to me to be an ugly office and a simple one.
1: Apparently, Charles II also had to set up a system to keep people from coming back for seconds, basically. (laughs) Charles II used the king's touch on 90,000 subjects between 1660 and 1682. He and his court also tried to put a stop to anyone else treating scrofula through the laying on of hands. Charles I had taken similar steps in his reign, and they had both also taken steps to keep people from coming back repeatedly. In 1637, a father and his seventh son were investigated for their use of the son's purported healing powers. A neighbor had had scrofula, and the child's grandmother had held the baby's hand up to the neighbor's neck, who had then reportedly been cured. Father and son went on to treat many more people, but were told to stop it. They were, however, spared further punishment uh, because folks were basically afraid that their followers would be angered if they were treated too harshly.
0: Similarly, Valentine Greatrakes, also known as the Stroker, had been a lieutenant in Oliver Cromwell's army, but went on to become something of a faith healer. In 1662, he was suddenly struck by the knowledge that he had the power to heal the king's evil. He started healing people with prayers and laying on of hands, and eventually his fame spread far enough that he was summoned before the court and ordered to stop. After repeated orders from increasingly more powerful figures within the church failed to get him to stop, the ecclesiastical court decided that they were risking the ire of his followers, and they gave up. He finally wound up being summoned to Whitehall to appear before Charles II, the results of which did not make it into the historical record.
1: It's it's There are so many different ways that conversation could have gone, because he and Charles II were both touching a whole lot of people to try to cure their scrofula, so it's it's not a hundred percent clear whether Charles II was like, dude, you gotta lay off. This is my territory, or whether it was more like a meeting of the faith healers.
0: Or maybe they touched each other, an event horizon opened up, and things got really crazy. <laughs> no?
1: <laughs> so the idea of the royal touch as being evidence. Uh, for who was the legitimate ruler appeared once again during the glorious revolution and the jacobite attempts to return the stuarts to the throne. William III also known as William of Orange and his wife Mary became joint monarchs in 1689. William only perf- only performed the royal touch once saying afterward quote god give you better health and more sense. <laughs>
0: Meanwhile, the exiled Stuarts, including Bonnie Prince Charlie, kept up the habit, and Queen Anne, last monarch of the House of Stuart, touched hundreds of subjects. One was writer Samuel Johnson, who she touched when he was just two years old.
1: In the words of John Kent's 1833 treatise on Scrofula, which we uh, read from earlier in the show, quote, it appears that Queen Anne was the last sovereign who practiced such a ridiculous and superstitious imposition. Anne's successor, George I, put an end to the practice in England after becoming king in 1714 because he thought it was just a superstition. <laughs> In France, the French Revolution put an end to the practice by overthrowing the monarchy in 1789.
0: See what you did? Now we can't have the king's touch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is, of course, lots of debate about what was really going on here from both a medical and a religious sense. There were doctors and clergy alike who viewed the practice with a lot of skepticism. It wasn't like everybody believed that this was a legitimate healing practice, Uh in spite of the fact that speaking out against the royal touch got at least one person convicted for treason.
1: Much like all of the other people who were told to stop being faith healers with Scrofula, uh, this guy was ultimately pardoned because they were afraid of angering his followers. <laughs> one common cause of Scrofula in medieval and early modern Europe was contracting a bovine form of tuberculosis through drinking contaminated milk. And this comes up a whole lot in modern treatments of this whole phenomenon. Uh, This form of the condition didn't typically lead to other symptoms of tuberculosis, and it often resolved itself, uh, later giving the patient a heightened immunity to pulmonary tuberculosis as well. So there are a lot of people who were like, maybe because so many people were getting this bovine form of tuberculosis through contaminated milk, And then it was resolving coincidentally after the monarch touched them. Maybe that explains it all, but that's really not, uh, really not quite an adequate explanation for something that went on for that many centuries. (laughs) It's a very long time and thousands of people.
0: Yeah. I wonder, um, if there's much on the record about the timeline of the healing right like other than the one where it, there's discussion of the the pressing of the the abscesses and draining them you know it's is it as though people magically walked away with unswollen necks and were instantly healed according to the record or is it a case where it probably was just it running its course and they're like the king touched me 3 weeks ago and I feel much better now
1: yeah <laughs> or people selectively remembering the people who got better. Right. Uh, and not remembering the folks who didn't. Uh, like I said at the top of the show, I knew that this was a thing among medieval monarchs. I had no idea that it continued on and on and on all the way till the French Revolution. That's just, uh, <laughs> threw me for a little bit of a loop. Hey, if you liked today's episode of our show, you might also like a podcast I love a whole lot called Sawbones. Sawbones is a show about medical history that is not it's medical advice fun. or opinion. It is very fun Uh by Justin and Dr. Sidney McElroy. Um, really, it's Dr. Sidney McElroy, who is the doctor and Justin is kind of her comedic foil. I love them. So yeah, this month, you may notice uh, on the Internet, there are a lot of podcasts talking about trying other podcasts. It is a, uh, a rising tide lifts all boat kind of initiative called Tripod. I said all boat as in we're all in the same one, which we kind of are. <laughs> uh, so we will on our uh, Twitter, uh, we will tweet out a little bit about Sawbones with the hashtag Tripod. You can learn more about them. Check out their show. I really, really enjoy it. They have done a lot of stuff that is both very funny, very informative, sometimes very gross, which is when Justin is like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, hmm Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and you also can participate in all of this. You can tell your friends about podcasts you enjoy and hashtag them tripod so folks can find all of these cool recommendations in one place.
0: How about some listener mail, Tracy?
1: I do have listener mail. First, I'm going to thank you. I'm going to thank listener Nicole who sent us a card and a postcard and some Laura Secord chocolates. I ate them. They were delicious. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, thanks. So thank you so much for sending them. And then I also have uh, an actual email. Uh, And this is from Renee, and Renee has written about Executive Order 9066 and the internment of Japanese-Americans during World War II. Renee says, hello, Tracy and Holly. I'm finally writing in to share an interesting family story that connects to the recent podcast on Japanese internment. Growing up, my grandfather always told my dad, if anyone asks what you are or where you're from, tell them you're an American. We, my father, my brother, and myself, assumed that my grandfather insisted on being called an American because of the discrimination he faced as a Mexican-American mechanical engineer in the 1950s. Many of the companies that hired him only did so because his white colleagues vouched for him. It was not until about 10 years ago that my family learned that my paternal grandfather was half Mexican and half Japanese. We were shocked, to say the least. My father spent the first 50 years of his life thinking that his family ancestry was Mexican and German, the German ancestry coming from his mother's side. In addition to this astonishment, my father and I learned more about our family history at my great uncle's 100th birthday, There, my father and I spoke with family members about this secret of being Japanese. We learned that during World War II, the family had changed their surname. For the sake of privacy, it was originally a hyphenated surname that contained a part that's recognizably Mexican and a part that's recognizably Japanese. And they changed it to just being the part that is more Mexican in origin. Additionally, the family story goes that the Mexican mother and her 10 children were actually taken to a processing center to be sent to a concentration camp. However, the mother and children lived in a Mexican neighborhood in Los Angeles, and the Japanese father was deceased long before the war. Supposedly, the Mexican neighbors rallied in support and wrote letters and signed a petition that the family had no connection to Japan or Japanese culture. After this, the family was released from custody and returned to their Mexican enclave and changed their last name. My grandfather and one of his brothers went on to serve in World War II. Then my grandfather was the only one to see combat. And then she goes on to talk about his being wounded and sent back into the field. Uh, and then his medical discharge papers are clearly stamped with race, Mexican. I apologize for the drawn-out anecdote. However, I'm fascinated by the story of a mixed-race family during World War II. I haven't verified the story of being taken to a processing center and their eventual release. It may be an exaggerated story of elderly family members, for all I know. What I do know is that my grandfather and the majority of his siblings refused to acknowledge their Japanese ancestry until very recently due to prejudice. Many of them were called derogatory slurs, spat on, and beat up. It was apparently particularly hard on the sisters. Also, I think this is a particularly uh, illustrative example of how immigrants and the American-born children navigate what it means to be an American, which many times means denying their cultural heritage and changing their names. I've been a constant listener of Stephanie Stuff you in History class since 2015 when I worked in a university library archive where I spent hours scanning newspapers into an online database. Needless to say, I needed some mental stimulation to get through the, the monotony. I truly appreciate the research and heart you put into the podcast. I hope you find the story interesting and feel free to use it on the podcast. All the best. Renee. Thank you, Renee, for that story. We talked a little bit about people who, um, who were biracial or multiracial, but not a, not a whole lot. And we definitely did not get into, um, people who had shared Mexican and Japanese ancestry. So thank you so much for writing to the, us about that. We also have gotten quite a number of people who have told us how to say Thule Lake. Yes. Which if we had been able to see Allegiance That's what before was <laughs> we recorded those shows, we would have known. It is one of the many things that I looked up and did not find in any of the sources that we normally use how to say so. Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash in history and on Twitter at Miss in History. Our Tumblr is we or on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash in history, and our Instagram is missed in history. Uh one more time, if you want to try out some new podcasts, recommend some new podcasts to folks, hashtag them tripod. Uh, and check out Sawbones. I super enjoy them. And we should say that is... T-R-Y. T-R-Y-P-O-D. Yep. T-R-Y-P-O-D. You can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, to find out all kinds of information about strange medical conditions from the past, weird practices that used to be classified as medicine, but aren't anymore... And you can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, and you will find an archive of every episode we have ever done, which is searchable. And you will also find our show notes for the episodes Holly and I have done. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.